This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello welcome to the red box podcast i'm matt chorley bringing you the best of my times radio show monday to thursday 10 till 1 and don't say we never give you what you want even the music is back you asked for more Times columnists there on the podcast, and now we've even got the old music back. We finally got there in the end. Uh, coming up in just a sec, uh, today's Times columnists. It's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. That's Danny Finkelstein and David Aronovich, uh, the hinging bracket of uh, Times columnists, some might argue. Uh, and then we're going to be talking about cash. Are you happy uh, that we're going cashless increasingly? Uh, and who uh, loses out as a result? And we are looking for people to play our quiz. Can you get to number 10? Uh, it's very straightforward. 10 uh, general knowledge questions, each loosely connected to 10 cabinet jobs. The more questions you get, right, the better the job you get, taking your place alongside other listeners and our various guests and Times Radio people. So if you want to have a go at doing the quiz, email me now, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on Times Radio very soon. Uh, so coming up, uh, we'll talk about the money in your pocket. But first, Finkovich. I know. I was going to, I was going to uh, take up with him this idea that he says before we come on that we're going to pick over the news because it always kind of Im- makes me imagine those pictures of people in kind of outside Latin American slum cities who do who have to kind of work on the rubbish dump, etc. <laughs> no, no, and this is kind of what you and I do. We kind of... <laughs> he's abandoned his usual cliches in favour of insults for some reason. <laughs> I've no idea why he thinks that's appropriate. Anyway, carry on, Matt. Good morning, Danny. Good morning. <laughs> morning, David. Morning, Shirley. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice to have you with us. Fine. Let's go and pick through, pick over the news. Um, <laughs> as yeah, you're right. There is something about, something about picking over the news. It's a bit sort of Gillian McKeith doing her, you know, analysing stools. But anyway, let's not let's not uh, get bogged down in that. <laughs> uh, we've just been talking. We've been talking about obviously everyone's talking about vaccines and how you get people to to uh, agree to have a vaccine. And whether should it be made compulsory, Danny? I'm not in favour of it, but I wouldn't absolutely rule it out, is the way that I put it. So the starting position has got to be you've got to try and get voluntary uh, compliance. And I think you'll probably get enough voluntary compliance. But do I think that it's something that you can't countenance at all? Absolutely not. Look, if you can say to people... You have to stay in your home uh, for the health uh, to protect the health of other people. Um, you can't go to a restaurant. Uh, you can't see this person. You can't see that person. You you can also say the same about you know about about vaccines. But I think 
we'd all acknowledge that it was quite a difficult thing to do to make people accept personal health interventions. And so uh, while I wouldn't absolutely say it was something you couldn't do, I would be strongly disinclined to do it and hope it was not necessary. What about you, uh, David? Uh, how do you, well, if people won't do it, and obviously it's in the, for the greater good uh, that everyone gets the vaccine... I think, I think we should be clear about what we're talking about here. When we talk about compulsory vaccination, what we really mean is mandatory vaccination. In other words, you have to have it for certain situations because absolutely nobody's talking about kidnapping, press-ganging people in off the street and compulsory <laughs> shoving a needle in their arms. Maybe, maybe, That's not uh, going to happen. Maybe so, using a dart uh, like they use for like doing elephants from a distance. You could just be walking well, down exactly, the street. Just like kind of random passers-by, <laughs> etc. Yeah, uh, OK. Whatever you do, don't walk past the hospital this week because they're darting people. Um, uh, that's not what happens. So what happens in places where you have a kind of mandatory vaccination? And we're already talking about, Qantas are already talking about a mandatory vaccination to travel on long haul flights. So that's an example of compulsory immunisation at work. Um, uh, Australia, uh, and so Qantas is, not, uh, Qantas is just doing something Australia's already done in its schools. You have to register your child's vaccination status at the point where you go into primary or secondary school. And they can exclude you on the say-so of a public health officer. Now, that's another example of mandatory vaccination. Now, Dan is absolutely right. You want, as far as possible, not to have to do that. And in the case of coronavirus, you probably don't have to because you don't need to reach the levels of vaccination that you to achieve herd immunity that you do with, say, measles, which is an incredibly communicable disease and which most and which uh, uh, affects children uh, uh, very significantly and those who are immune compromised. That's why you need to build up herd immunity. Coronavirus is slightly different. My thinking about it, therefore, is that for certain situations, while we are still unrolling the vaccines, etc., we might need to have mandatory vaccines well. in certain situations like flights. But in the long term, it won't be the way to go. By the way, the reason you need to do this for a lot of vaccines is because, uh, you know, because people, after all, if they don't get vaccinated, it's them that's the most vulnerable. Uh, but the reason that we need it in some places they use it is because children who then uh, grow up and haven't had the vaccine are vulnerable till they have it. Um, this isn't really the issue with COVID. Um, so it may never yeah. be necessary to do that. In other words, you probably won't ever need a COVID va vaccination until you're um, able to make the choice yourself as to whether you want it, at which point I think it's reasonable to say, well, if you don't have it, it's your lookout. Um, so uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't probably have the same qualities as, say, measles does. Um, and I think, funnily enough, with some of the issues we've never discussed publicly in Britain, things like measles, it, it is, there's, a, there's a stronger case because of children. There is, yeah. And who would who would who do you who do you think could be drafted in to um, uh, get the vaccine first to persuade everyone else? The Queen, is it the Queen and David Attenborough? <laughs> I mean, they, technically, they should be at the front of the queue anyway. Well, yes, actually, uh, we laugh, but that's absolutely that's absolutely right. They would be two very good. If you see um, the Queen and uh, and the Duke of Edinburgh and uh, and Prince Charles, because after all, he's of an age now, so he's in kind of tier yeah. four, uh, I think it is, which is kind of pretty ancient. Um, uh, getting it, then in that case, you're likely to say, "Well, yeah, yeah I mean, if they can do it, uh, I will do it too." So, yes, I think that's I think you I think you're spot on there. Now, how about that bloke from Lewis, you know, um, uh, uh, Lawrence Fox? We could get him. <laughs> I'm not sure where he... Uh, I, I don't think he's necessarily at the front of the queue. Um, 
Although, yeah, because we were, we, I was talking about this with Tom Whipple earlier that, you know, someone, I think uh, Sue texted in saying, well, they want to see the, gov- the, the Prime Minister and Matt Hancock have it first. And of course, if they do have it first, yeah. they'll then be jumping the queue and it'll be, what, you know, it'll be special <laughs> treatment for them. <laughs> but actually, the serious answer to it is I think it's people with medical and scientific knowledge that people will trust. Because the only concern is, yeah. is this uh, safe? Um, and um, because I think people will want it. So I don't think it's a question of, uh, but there they may be some doubts as to whether it's safe. Um, and so I think people are doing and it. And it is one of those things would, at the moment. It's, it. it's sort of a thing in the abstract, isn't it? Was once once your parents, grandparents, or whatever have been rolling up their sleeves and all been having it, and everyone's getting it, and it's a thing that you're doing, and life can return yeah. to normal when everyone when we've hit a certain percentage. That's the best incentive for you know. Suddenly it becomes yeah, a real thing. The big the big problem is probably not, um, and, uh, and people have been discussing this recently, and it's a really interesting discussion, it's probably not kind of that proportion of the population which is kind of anti-vaccination, but that proportion of the population that just doesn't really turn up to things when you need, when they need health information yeah. or when they need to do something which is slightly different. And reaching those people is particularly tricky. So you've got to think about what role models and what forms of approach yeah. work for people in those it, sorts of situations rather than, say, for you or me or Danny. I mean, I'm going to role have this vaccination the first opportunity I get. I think role models isn't actually probably the first, my first point of call. It would be simplicity for exactly the reason that you suggested. It's basically ease of access. Um, it's trying to get this into places where people yeah. don't have to uh, organise their lives, in, particularly because you're going to have to ask people quite possibly to have two vaccinations. And if you are, then it's people turning up to the second one. Um, and it's yeah. it's chaotic lives or indeed just a sort of sometimes a bit of indolence that causes people not to have, not to organise themselves to go twice. And so um, and I know that was a problem with MMR, for example. And so that's what you have to address. And I think it's getting its ease rather than social proof, really. I, I think once David's yeah. got it, the entire nation will follow. They usually do. They usually do. Right, let's talk about uh, Dishy Rishi. Rishi Sunak's up in the House of Commons on Wednesday with his... Uh, Spending review, uh, and there's some suggestion that uh, the prime minister might be jealous of him, uh, of all the popularity that he gets. Uh, is that a real thing, David? Well, that's what I wanted to ask Danny because, again, it's one of those areas where he's actually worked with prime ministers in situations or in with, with senior politicians, and I haven't so much. Um, so I was wondering, uh, but you often get this, and I was recalling the um, the Mo Molum situation for those of the people who are a bit kind of older. I mean, Matt, you were at school at the time, um, or probably <laughs> oh, no, I literally born. Was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, no, exactly. But Mo Molum was a very popular minister. She was at the Northern Ireland Department. And there began to be these stories about how possibly it was possibly true that she's been treated in a particular way because Tony Blair or Peter Manson were jealous. It later transpired that actually quite a lot of this had to do with the fact that she'd ha- had a malignant brain tumour, which she'd not reported to the Prime Minister, which, although she was a brilliant minister in many, many ways, made her behaviour rather erratic and rather difficult. But it was more. But people didn't know that. So the explanation they put on what was going on was this kind of jealousy. And I was wondering if Danny thought that it was actually true, that if you have a very competent minister and you're the Prime Minister and they're, and they're popular... Do you think, oh, well, they're a real enhancement to me, so that's great? Or do you think, oh, they might supplant me, I'd better do something about them? Yeah, I'm not, I don't, I, that's a good question, but I don't think I've really, have encountered 
cases where I thought jealousy of somebody else's popularity was the motivating force uh, for the differences of opinion between them. You know, there are politicians who don't get on very well, like Theresa May and Philip Hammond, and I don't think either of them were jealous of the other's popularity. Um, <laughs> for I, an obvious know, reason. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 th- there was definitely an, an interesting relationship between Boris Johnson and David Cameron, which... Um, was definitely a little bit motivated by Boris Johnson's, by both of them thinking the other person wasn't very talented and it was amazing that they'd got as far as they had, right? Um, and and um, more Boris Johnson having that view of David Cameron, actually, than vice versa. Um, and uh, But so there's sometimes um, a sort of underestimation of somebody's ability or an incomprehension about how they could have got to where they got to. Um, but I've rarely, I rarely, I don't really think a straightforward jealousy, I'm trying to think of historical examples where that's the case, is usually, um, is usually the issue. But there, there can be moments where, you know, lots of people, for example, uh, thought that Harold Wilson uh, didn't have what it takes. Uh, how could he be the leader? It's, it is occasionally the case that people are held back in politics by the view that they should be the prime minister um, and they should be, um, you know, more prominent than they are. And sometimes if you watch somebody on the back benches and you think that person is quite able, I wonder why they're still there. You find that's actually one of the reasons <laughs> they've cut across the party line because they uh feel impatient that their talent hasn't been recognised. So that so, does so, occasionally so what, happen. But Prime Ministers, so what about that, Ministers, less often. So what about that front-runner thing, uh, Danny? And, and Matt, you've also encountered this, which is the kind of notion that if you're nominated the front-runner, that's your kind of death knell. Because at that <laughs> yeah. point, everybody else is out to get you. What exactly? Uh, it's and they don't care about it's not just that. I think it's much more um, regression to the mean, right? So you, you, get, you get, you know, pe- politicians aren't that popular most of the time, but you get peaks and troughs. Um, and um, often you're the front runner when you're having a peak, and people next notice when you've got a trough. Uh, and so uh, they accord that. They think that's it's a bit like in football, you'll be aware of that, the curse mm. of Barclays Manager of the Month. And that is simply a statistical phenomenon known as regression to the mean. If you do particularly well in one year, you're likely to be doing worse the next. And I think that's there's more of that involved. Certainly Rishi Sunak's got a bit of that at the moment, Um uh, you know, and in fact, actually, it's what I'm writing about at the moment for the paper, which is um, the fact that he's kind of one side of the big challenge that's ahead of him, which is, you know, essentially how we're going to pay back all the money that we borrowed. Um, so, um, yes, there is a, there is a front runner uh, but I, uh, syndrome, but I don't think it's because people dislike you being the front runner. Uh, just finally, then, um, overnight, we got uh, the news that Donald Trump is almost sort of kind of in a way implied that he's conceded the election uh, by saying he's going to carry on fighting the good fight. But uh, now allowing um, Joe Biden's uh, transition team to work with uh, the White House and the US uh, government. Um, I mean, the interesting thing for this is that uh, we don't have anything like this sort of transition in no. the UK. And that, um, it's sort of, you know, uh, we get the election result and by the morning, the removal vans are outside and one prime minister's packing up and the other one's arriving. Would it be better, David, if we had a transition period like this in the UK? Well, 
I was thinking about this, about, about how, whether or not you could possibly organise such a thing. I mean, you, we know that there are kind of things with you whereby the civil service do do some working with the opposition to think about their priorities, and there are some kind of meetings. But when Tony Blair uh, uh, won the 1997 election, Labour hadn't been in power uh, for 18 years. I mean, none of them had been near ministerial office, uh, just about. I think there was one person who didn't hold junior ministerial office, you know, half a century earlier, etc. And they knew absolutely nothing. So when they went into Downing Street uh, and John Major vacated it, um, they knew almost nothing uh, about it. And I don't know what Danny thinks, but it does seem that under those circumstances, I mean, Labour have been ahead in the polls for a very long time. Now, you can't take anything for granted. It's obviously a difficult judgment to make. But there could have been an argument for saying that there is some kind of... I don't know, interim period. Yeah. But of course, you can't have it after you the can, election because as soon well, as you in can. our system... Can you not? St- well, that's what I think. I think instead of... I think it's preposterous that we have no transition and we're obviously losing. You know, in the most junior jobs, you give people exit interviews. It's ridiculous that people don't do that, that one minister hardly talks to the what to the predecessor and goes around the same problems all over again. Not Even between, by the way, even inside reshuffles and sometimes between uh, prime ministers in some, inside the government. So the movement from Tony Blair to Gordon Brown or the movement from David Cameron to Theresa May, partly that's because of hubris of the incoming people, but... Uh, partly it's, you know, the system. I think we definitely should have a transition. And the way it should work is, yes, Tony Blair should have taken over. You can't really have this transition fully before. There should have been much more preparation. But afterwards, there should be a, you know, there should be a month of formal procedure in which it's the kind of duty of the people leaving to to, to provide that advice. And they'd be only too happy to do it, in my experience. I certainly think in 97, the, the John Major and um, and Michael Wazitlan, the people I was working with, Ken Clark, you know, they definitely would have uh, would have seen it. They've taken their duty very seriously and provided that uh, that transition period. And so with the civil service. That was Danny Finkelstein and David Ivanovich, and you can obviously read them every day in the Times. Pick up a copy of the Times or go online and subscribe. Go to uh, thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Ox to subscribe to the Times right now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So, how much money do you have in your pocket right now? 
When was the last time you had any money in your pocket? I've got a 50p which has been next to my bed for about four months because I've got no way of uh, knowing where to use it. With uh, fewer places to go to and even fewer places now taking coins and notes when you get there. Are we becoming a cashless society? Well, even before the pandemic hit, cash use has been halving every 10 years. In 2008, it accounted for around 60% of transactions. In uh, 2010, it was around 30%. And last year, it was 27%. And it's expected to fall even more sharply uh, during 2020. But does this matter? That's what we're going to talk about uh, right now on Times Ready. So first of all, let's speak to Gareth Shaw, Head of Money at the Consumer Group Witch. Hi, Gareth. Good morning, Matt. Uh, nice to have you uh, with us. Obviously, Consumer Group uh, Witch, uh, always think about, you know, how people, um, normally what people should and shouldn't buy. But this is, you know, how we should go about paying for it. So we keep being told that cash is a thing of the past. Is that true and is that really a problem uh it's certainly not a thing of the past cash will always have its place but over the past few years we've been really worried that that the uk has been kind of sleepwalking into cashlessness without properly preparing for it we know that the benefits of digital payments contactless payments um, mobile payments are vast and the people who are participating in that um, are, are are really enjoying those benefits but there are you know a significant minority of people in in the uk for whom cash is completely indispensable 1.1 million people thought to solely be solely reliant on cash um, and and you know there's a generation difference so it tends to be older people but we've spoken to such a diverse um, group of of um, users of cash during our campaign on this from you know um, disabled groups visual impairments people who've been in debt um, people who were victims of domestic abuse for whom cash was the only sense of financial independence they had you know th- these groups absolutely rely on cash so what we want to see is as we move increasingly into a digital payment card payment economy that this transition away from cash is managed and the people who really rely on it can still rely on it can still access it uh, and obviously there's a big impact on on things like charities as well isn't there that, that you know if people have got collecting tins obviously the british legion struggled this year for the poppy appeal partly because people weren't out and about but also they couldn't have people out collecting tins you know giving money to the homeless as well if you if you haven't got any change on you then that that also becomes really difficult Absolutely. You know, even small businesses, not all of them are armed with um, uh, card payment terminals. You know, I've been to places like South Moulton in Devon, uh, where where this is a big farming community and there's a farmer's market there. And and people who are running those stores say, if I got a card machine, it would, my margins are already so thin. um, I wouldn't be able to make a profit on what I'm selling if I have to pay the the fee on my um, card terminal. So, you know, until everybody has that technology, in their hands, including, you know, charity people, including homeless people. We know that the big issue uh, sellers, for example, are being armed with them now. And until, you know, everybody has that capability to take those payments or there's new technology that comes in that allows everybody to comfortably make those payments, we're going to need cash. I think the other critical thing here is that Technology, we know, is not infallible. We've seen banking systems go down. One major bank went down for a couple of months a couple of years ago. And the the only um, 
uh, safety net there is cash. Um, so, you know, as we get into an increasingly digital way of banking, there are inevitably going to be issues and people will need to pay for things. And that's what cash will be there for. Yes. You know, if you've got you're always relying on your phone um, to pay for things and then your battery runs out, you suddenly find that um, you don't have uh, access to money either. Um, you just mentioned that, you know, talk about Devon, you know, rural areas in particular, it could be really tough for people if if a cash machine disappears and that sort of, you know, or you have to get on a bus uh, or you can't get on the bus without go you know, because they only take cash, uh, but you can't get any cash because the cash machines, you know, that, that has a big, massive impact on people's lives, doesn't it? The ability to get around. Absolutely. And, you know, organisations like Link, which is, the, you know, the UK's largest cash network, um, has rules in place to ensure that, that people do have an, uh, nearby access to cash machines. It's been piloting initiatives to install um, cash machines in an area where there's been a, a, a real cash desert and they're all to be commended. Um, but we, we have, for the past couple of years, been calling on government to step in. We think this is something that the government and regulators should be overseeing. Um, and rather than a, a kind of piecemeal approach from different industries, um, this is a transition that the government needs to oversee and that a regula regulator has to have responsibility to monitor to ensure that, as you're saying, people in rural areas and other areas aren't shut out from access to cash, can get access to when they need it and can push industry to innovate to allow people to pay in the way that they want to. Well, as we can see, Gareth Shaw, head of money at the consumer group, which, and he mentioned Link, which is the uh, Link UK is behind all the cash machines in the UK. And we can now be joined by Graham Mott, who's director of strategy at Link UK. Morning, Graham. Morning. Uh, nice to have you with us. We've also got Ricky Knox, chief executive and co-founder of Tandem Bank. Hi, Ricky. Oh, very good, very good. So, Graham, just explain uh, what Link is and your role in, in, in you know, running is it all of the cash machines in the UK? Yes, that's right. So every effectively every cash machine in the country is connected to Link. We don't operate the machines ourselves. Uh, but what we do is connect them. So when you uh, you use a ATM, which doesn't belong to your bank, so whether that's another bank or uh, one of the independents, which operate more than half the ATMs, then that goes through our system and we process the transaction and make sure that, you know, your account is debited correctly and the ATM operator who gave you the cash gets the value for the cash as well. And we also, uh, as uh, Gareth said, we set the rules uh, around you know, the fees and things like this. But we also, uh, very importantly in this area, we run a financial inclusion program, which uh, some areas where they would otherwise not be economic, uh, and therefore we help consumers access to cash, which is a critical part of our role. Uh, Ricky from uh, Tandem Bank, just explain what uh, Tandem Bank is and, and your role in, in helping people access their money. Sure. So Tandem Bank's are one of the new generation of, uh, of digital banks. People might have heard of Monzo or Starling uh, as well. We were all born around the same time. And, and, uh, and, and we're definitely you know, building more for the cash less segment. We recognize that there are disadvantaged groups that, that still need to access cash. Indeed, our own customers occasionally need to access cash and we facilitate that through, you know, the Lynx ATMs or indeed um, uh, through the post office, et cetera. But, um, uh, but, but our customer groups are, are more on the, on the cutting edge of, uh, um, of, of cashless adoption. And if, if someone uh, is with Tandem Bank and they do want to take some cash out of a machine, do they have to pay for that? Uh, no. No, they okay. don't. Um, uh, we, we do pay for that. Um, so um, uh, depending on how much cash that is, uh, um, there is a charge to the bank, but we don't pass that charge on to the customer. Oh, so that's interesting. And, it, and then, uh, Graham, um, the number of cash, how many cash machines are there in the UK and how many of those are free? Because obviously sometimes you can, depending on where you are, you stick your card in and it says it's going to cost you a pound or two pounds or whatever to take money out. There's currently about uh, 55,000 
ATMs across the UK. The numbers are fluctuating a bit at the moment because of you know the coronavirus crisis. We've got some ATMs are closed because the premises they're in are closed in you know, cinemas, for example, at the moment. Um, and of those, about 17,000 are charging ATMs, but they only account for about four, four and a half percent of the cash withdrawal. So though there's quite a lot of charging machines, they're not used very much. They're usually in very, very low footfall areas uh, and you know, in convenience stores and things like that. So they a uh, significant number of them, but a low proportion of the transactions are paid to use. And how, how much, in terms of the amount of cash we're taking out of cash machines, how much has it gone down by in recent years? Have you seen a big drop this uh, year? Yeah, we have. I mean, it, it has, the uh, uh, introduction said at the start, we've been seeing reductions you know, up till the beginning of the crisis of about uh, between 10 and 12% uh, a year reduction in cash usage. Now, when we had the, the first lockdown, there was a big reduction in cash and it dropped by almost 60% for a short period of time. Wow. It's then recovered over the summer. Uh, and when we got to about September, October, it was still down about 30, 35% on what it was this time last year. We've obviously had lockdowns again in November, which has added an extra 10% of that, as we said at the start, and there's very limited opportunities or more limited opportunities to spend cash at the moment. So overall, the crisis is probably reducing cash usage year on year, so compared with the same time in 2019, by about 30, 35%. Um, Ricky, uh, we just had actually uh, just had a message in from somebody called Jenny saying cash is so important to teach young children to marry, manage money. I'll actually go further than that. Sometimes... Everything being virtual doesn't always totally feel like real money. Do you? Uh, how can people feel like they're keeping on top of their finances if it's all just sort of virtual money rather than sort of notes and coins in their personal wallet? Absolutely. No, this is a super critical problem. And what we're seeing here, um, and, and indeed the digital banks responding, is the need for a whole category of, of tools and help for, for customers, um, which are actually very well provided by an app that can... You know, because tapping away with your plastic bank card with maybe your internet banking somewhere on your computer at home, if you're lucky, or your branch to check your balance is is extremely tricky because you don't know where you are. But when you tap a tandem card, you get an instant message that not only tells you how much you spend, which I find quite handy because often I'm not even aware whether they charge me the right amount until I'm walking out of the shop. And then, um, and then it also puts you in the context of your budget and how much you've spent, laid out for spending in different categories throughout the, throughout the month. This is a service that, that many of the digital banks offer, but actually the traditional banks are, uh, don't, don't provide. And I think there is, as you say, a real, a real gap opening up here, which is um, people need a lot more help. I, I used to budget with cash. I found it dead easy to take out you know, £100 as a student and spend that over the course of a week. I know where I was and I wasn't going out on Friday if I didn't have any money left. Um, <laughs> there's, something, there's something that, 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 is, that is something that people need help with, and particularly in those more vulnerable, lower-income groups, um, uh, where um, where cash maybe maybe much easier. Uh, thanks for that, that, Ricky. Just finally, uh, Graham, talk us through the scheme that you've been running so that people can get money out from retail. It's sort of basically cash back, but without actually having to buy anything. Yeah, so this this is a pilot scheme at the moment, um, uh, and it's operating across thirteen sites across the UK. Uh, and say the the you know cashback's been around for a long time, but one of the limitations was it was you needed to to take a purchase, you had to buy something in order to to do it. Not everybody wants to buy something, uh, and so this is a pilot to try and see what consumer reaction is 
uh, when they don't have to buy something. So it's a pilot at the moment, but so far it seems to be going well. The convenience shops, which, you know, through the, the coronavirus crisis, these have been the most popular areas for people spending their cash and you know, people spending cash on food and, and essentials in convenience stops. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. It's very much a, you know, a supplement to ATMs. You know, there's thousands and thousands of ATMs, a lot of convenience stores as well. Um, so it's to see, you know, how can we use um, other channels to help people's access to cash in areas where perhaps an ATM may not be economically viable? And that's what we're looking at at the moment. Uh, fantastic. Really good to speak to you. Graham Mott there, Director of Strategy at Link UK. And before that, Ricky Knox, a co-founder of Tandem Bank. Finally, let's bring in uh, Iona Bain, who's founder of the Young Money blog. Hi, Iona. Iona, are you there? Like the Prime Minister, I think you're on mute. Oh, no, the ultimate error. Sorry. You're there. That. You're there. Now we can hear you. Now we can hear you. It's fine. If it's good enough for the Prime Minister, it's good enough. It's good enough for you too. So, yeah. So um, explain, first of all, what, what the Young Money blog is. Well, the Young Money blog is really a personal finance blog that's by a young person for young people. And I started it because I was a clueless graduate who was trying to find my way in the world, understand money um, and really struggling. And this was around the time of the last financial crash. And I realized I was far from alone, but there wasn't that much coverage in the media about personal finance and young people and the big financial challenges that we were facing, like the housing crisis, that was really kind of down to earth and empathetic and on our level. And I thought, mm, I think that needs to change. And maybe, maybe I'm the one that needs to step up to the plate and educate myself, but also maybe share what I was learning with other people too. So that's how Young Money Blog started. And, you know, nine years on, here I am. Okay, so let's talk about cash. Um, as we were just discussing, lots of young people now using, you know, apps and uh, um, online banks and maybe never even take any any cash out. But um, it can be difficult sometimes to, to track your spending in quite the same way rather than taking out, you know, if you take out £50 or whatever in cash, and you know, that's what you've got for the week rather than just beep, 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 beep and you don't always know what you've spent. Totally. I mean, my job has really moved into uh, trying to help young people understand both the opportunities and risks of this increasingly digital economy. So it used to be that I would recommend that young people who were somewhat losing control of their budget, uh, that the best thing for them to do would be, as you say, to just withdraw £50 from an ATM and use that on their night out. Because really, at the simplest level, once money is gone, it's gone. And I think that you can't really have a substitute for that simplicity of cash, whereby once you've spent it, that's it. Um, but recently, especially with COVID-19, you know, raising these concerns around the hygiene of cash, I've had to slightly adapt the advice that I give and talk maybe about having a jar method instead. So this is quite a popular budgeting method whereby uh, people might have multiple bank accounts or multiple cards and they put different spending in their lives onto these different cards. Um, so perhaps they have a special, you know, going out card. And obviously that's not a problem that, that lots of us are thinking <laughs> about at the moment. But when we get back to, you know, more normal times it could be that uh what young people will do instead of withdrawing cash is that they'll just have another card that's their going out card um but i think it does make life more complicated and i mean it was interesting you know your listener talking about the value of money in terms of teaching children about finances you know i did a uh, radio documentary a few years ago about financial education we went into a school we talked to uh, teachers about how they were kind of teaching children these important lessons and they were using toy money and i said to them, well, this is a bit strange because we're kind of growing up in this cashless world now and they're not going to be using cash for a lot of stuff in the future. And they said, yes, but there is no substitute for it. They need to know that this is this denomination of 
of, of coin is worth more than that denomination. And they had toy uh, coins and they had uh, like pretend banks and pretend supermarkets in the classroom and they were physically exchanging the money. And I realized, ah, if we don't have this, then children could grow up really not understanding the value of money. And that's a big concern. Just explain the concept of show and throw uh, for people who aren't <laughs> familiar with it. Yeah, so I uh, came across this not that long ago. I was speaking to a parent and she said, uh, in a way, I'm a bit relieved that we've got lockdown because um, my 19 year old was going a bit crazy with show and throw. And I thought, what? I said, what's that? And she said, well, they say they are using this phrase among among themselves, the kids these days. And what it means is they go out, they're showing their card to the card reader on a night out and they keep showing it over and over again. And that way they are throwing their money away. So show and throw is something that they are at least aware of. Um, but uh, it, it's one thing to be aware of it. And it's another thing to actually get on top of it, recognize it's a bad thing and try and avoid it. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.